All right, good morning. We are so glad that you are here. I just feel like we got to use that Greek phrase, shoot that thing. We have been blessed from at Calvary to death was arrested to his eye is on the sparrow. I mean, that's just good stuff. I don't know what else you need today. I hope you need something from the Word of God, because that's all I got. I can't sing like Tyler. That was beautiful. It was powerful. But we're so glad that you're here. And uh, just got looked over and saw Sarah and Blake and the boys there, and of course, Beck and John, and those kids. Good to have more of my family. I'm glad that they're in a place now where they don't have a gas mask in their closet. Amen? Real glad about that. All right. Whoops. Shh. Cut that one off. There we go. Okay. Hey, we're in our third series, the third message of our series today, entitled, The Right Stuff, Doing the Right Thing. And the topic is Unlikely Heroes. And I'm telling you, as I studied this message, um, started about two weeks ago on this particular message, and as I studied more intently down to it, I just got excited about it because God showed me several things I think are really going to be interesting and helpful to us um, in our journey. Now, again, there's one thing having the right stuff, and there's another thing to do the right thing. Often people have the right stuff, but they don't do anything with it. Um, There's a TV show that started in 2008 on ABC entitled, um, What Would You Do? And it's really good. I've only watched it a few times, but I have watched it. And I'm always amazed when I do. And the setup is something like this. They'll, they'll put hidden cameras in, and they'll set up situations that would probably demand, eh, not even probably, it would demand that people do something. Okay? Usually it's, um, well, not usually, a lot of times it's bullying, um, and not just kids. They'll see somebody, a husband bullying a wife, um, someone bullying the waiter or server in, in a restaurant, those kind of things. Um, so they use racism a lot, okay? And they'll see someone just making blatant racial comments, okay? And the idea is, as this, people don't know it's, it's set up, and they see this, what will people do with that? And, of course, as you can probably guess, a chunk of the time, people do nothing. People do nothing. Sometimes they do the appropriate thing and will go and speak to the person, and sometimes they get really belligerent, okay? But, but the point is, what do you do when you see something that, is, that needs to be done? Do you do the right thing? Do you do the right thing? And that's the basis of the story, uh, today's lesson, um, today from the Word of God. You know, there are three guys that really call, actually two guys and a gal, who caught my attention with quotes. I like using quotes these days. I think it really helps us understand sometimes the topic and the material. And the first one is a guy named Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke. Now, Edmund Burke was a social activist, politician in, in England in 17, probably 40s and 50s. And he was standing for the things that were right, and often that was not popular and um, so he, in writing a letter to an associate, he did this quote right here. It's really powerful. It says, the only thing necessary, now let this soak in. Don't run past this. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Now, I need to tell you, that's like the number one quote. I mean, you know, the last time we heard it used very publicly was John F. Kennedy, um, but it's a very popular quote because it's so powerful. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people, good men and women, to do nothing. And that's so true. And we see it so often, and particularly in our culture, we see it. 
today. And then I stumbled, and I was familiar with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany. I was very familiar with him. He was a pastor theologian um, in Germany in the years leading up to the war. When Hitler took office, he was one of those ones that had the courage, Brent, to say, this guy's an idiot. And he literally said just about that. This guy's an idiot. And he tried to warn the German people of what was coming in the days ahead. So as things got more and more uh, radical, um, he had an opportunity, and he could see, well, you didn't have to look very far, he could see war coming. He could see bad things coming. So he had the opportunity to go to England. And the purpose of going to England was to gather help for the church in Germany. And then he had the opportunity to go from England to the United States with the exact same thing. And again, keep in mind, things are going south quickly in Europe. War is coming. No one would have blamed him if he had stayed in either England or the United States. But rather than do that, he returned to Germany. And he did not return to Germany with silence. He returned to Germany with a loud voice. And he said this, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Is that powerful? And again, no one would have blamed him if he kind of went underground and tried to do the underground. He publicly denounced fascism and, and Hitler and all that was going on. He ended up in jail several times. And finally, toward the end of the war, um, he was accused of the plot, being a part of the plot to assassinate, assassinate Hitler, which, by the way, is kind of funny because he was not. But they put him in jail, still refusing to be silent. And just a few months before the end of the war, he was hung. But he could not be silent. He had the right stuff, and he had to do the right thing. He had the right stuff, and he had to do the right thing. Then the third is Catherine Booth. Now, Catherine Booth and her husband, William, are the founders of the Salvation Army. We may not agree with everything the Salvation Army stands for, but I went back and read the history of the Salvation Army. Oh, my gosh. It was so gospel-oriented. It was crazy. But when I read this, I mean, it really rung my bell. It really rung my bell, particularly in American culture today. Read it for yourself. If we are going to better the future, if we are going to better the future, we must disturb the present. Isn't that great? And I'm telling you what, that is, a, that is a quote for the church today. If we want a better future, then we've got to disturb the present. We have got to do something. We can't gather in our holy rooms, whether it looks like a gymnasium or the world's most beautiful sanctuary, and sit on our hands and sing worship songs and listen to the Word of God. We have got to take that outside the doors. We have got to do and not just hear and not just sing. If we want a better future, we've got to disturb the present. If we want the United States to come around and, and once again recognize the need for God, then the church has got to be the church. You've heard this over through the last series, and you keep hearing it come out of my mouth today. If we're going to better the future, we must disturb 
present. See, these three people, Edmund Burke and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Catherine Booth, would not have understood PC, political correctness. They would not have grasped that. Um, I, I came up with an alternative term, and it really probably says it clearer. Political correctness is nothing more than passive compliance. It's just going awry, you know, going awry, going away, and saying, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. God never called the church to be that. God called the church to make a difference. He, need, he calls to have powerful conviction. The, the PC for the, for the church is a powerful conviction, a conviction that we are willing to stand on. A.B. Simpson, and this came, by the way, from Rick Warren. Uh, I love it when God sends stuff in my email box. And Rick Warren was talking about heroes and stuff. And this was a quote uh, from A.B. Simpson that came from Rick Warren. It says, God is preparing his heroes. Now, let me bring it home. Jonathan, God's preparing you. God's preparing you. Mama T, Mickey, God's preparing you. And we go across the room. Greg, go over here. There's Jim over this way. You know, there's, there's Chris back there. God is preparing his heroes. And you must keep in mind, as we've talked about the unlikely heroes in the Bible, they were just common people, but they usually exercised uncommon faith. So God is preparing his heroes. And when the opportunity comes, key word, opportunity. When the opportunity comes, he can fit them in their places in a moment. And the world will wonder where they came from. I am certain we would all agree the fact that people wondered, where did this fiery preacher named Billy Graham come from? He came from a farm in North Carolina. And God was preparing him to be a spiritual hero. And countless thousands of people were saved because of his ministry. So today's heroes, today's unlikely heroes, played a major role in impacting the most important event in mankind. You know, it's, the cross is, is, is so amazing, but you must understand the importance also of the resurrection. They're like, they lock hand in hand, the cross and the resurrection. Because the resurrection verifies that the man who died on the cross was who he said he was. It states loudly, he was the son of God. God used the resurrection to prove. And these people today have impacted, okay, the resurrection story. And I'm really excited to share this with you. Now, um, back in, in 2011, in 2011, Andy Stanley preached a message entitled, Nick and Joe Save Easter. Now, trust me, this is not his message, but there's a couple things, and I'll tell you particularly one of them, that's going to pop up that I, that I snagged from Andy's sermon because he said it so well, it needed to be said um, here today. So what I did was, if you look at your sermon sheet, you'll see that there's Act 1 and Act 2, and we broke the sermon up in two acts. But when, really when I started doing this, um, I gave it to David, and you'll see on the screen today that we have Act 1, Scene 1, we have the prologue, just like it was a play. Just like it was played, because I really think it helps us put a timeline and motion to this. So you're going to see Act 1 and Act 2 with different scenes in there. We're going to have the end, end credits of the film and then the, the end of credit scene. So I'm really excited about presenting it this way. Now, this is the prologue. In other words, this is something that, that happens before the story really begins. 
Okay? And it's really, really important because it sets the ground. Now, not all the Pharisees were against Jesus. Okay? Most of them were. But there was apparently a small group, and we only know two of them, and you're going to learn this today, okay? But apparently, apparently there's a small group, and we know two of them who really God used to make a difference in the resurrection story. And so the prologue to this is, of all places, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So get your Bibles out. Look on the screens. Don't forget in the new version Bible app, the events there. It's got some different graphics. It's got a couple things that you might want to get. So if you've always wondered, well, should I use the Bible app during while, while you're preaching? Uh, they'd be a good day to do that. So look under the, the more section in the bottom corner. Look under events. Open that up, and you can follow right along. Dave's done a great job also of putting it up on the screen for us. All right? So here we go. So in John chapter 3, okay, well, the Bible says it best. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said, if I had one chapter to share with a dying lost man on his deathbed, it would be John chapter 3. And we know it so well. Well, here's how it starts out. In John 3, 1, there was a man, okay, there was a man, and notice he's from the Pharisees. He's from the Pharisees. So the Pharisees have sent this man to Jesus. But I'm going to show you in just a moment, it's not the whole group. It's this small group. It's these however many there were that, that were looking for a Messiah. And as they studied the life of Jesus, they said, you know what? This could be the guy. This could be the guy. Okay? So, so this man comes to Jesus, and he's from the Pharisees, and his name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus, all right? So he was a ruler of the Jews. So we're going to find out one thing here and another thing later, uh, or you can look later. One is that, one, he was a very powerful man. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He had power and he had influence. And let me know later on, um, from the gift that he lives for Jesus, he's very rich. So here's a man. Now watch, watch. He's got influence. He's got power. He's got money. Okay, so this man, okay, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus, okay? He came to him at night, and there's all kinds of speculation, all kinds of speculation about, about what does that mean. I, I'm not afraid to say I really believe it probably was the fear, okay? Because, again, if word gets out that he is a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, or even interested in Jesus, there's a good chance that he won't be on the Sanhedrin very long. So he comes to Jesus at night. And here's what he says. Rabbi, now notice the pronoun here. Rabbi, we, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. And here's the reason why. For no one can perform these signs you do unless God was with him. So this is how we know. Now this is how we know that, this, that Nicodemus did not come representing all the Pharisees. Because all the Pharisees would never say... We know you've come from God. In fact, they hated him because he claimed to come from God. So this is not all the... This is that small group. And whether Nicodemus was sent by them or he went on his own is probably up for debate. But there's questions. Jesus, and the main, main question with the Pharisees was, you know, how can we know God? How can we know God? So, so he comes to him and says, we know you're a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, Jesus then replies out of the blue and says, Truly I tell you, unless someone, now this is so good, and you know this, is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that unless 
a man experience or a woman experiences or a child experiences a change so radical, the only way to describe it is like being born again. You can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you experience something so radical, and that does not include going to church or being baptized or giving money or acts of good work or even doing the right thing. Okay? You can't see the kingdom of God. And I am almost certain, you know, Nicodemus said, I was going to, he, he knows the answer before I ask the question. And, you know, we're, we're stutters of the law. We want to know, how do you know God? What laws do you have to keep? You know, how good do you have to be to really know God? And then Jesus comes along and answers his question before it's asked. He does that frequently. You must be born again. Unless a person's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes on and says this. He says to Jesus, how can anyone be born when he's old? Um, um, Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And you got to wonder if there's like a smile on his face. Jesus, what are you saying here? You know, am I supposed to go to my mom and say, hey, mom, I need to be reborn. Can you know, I go back in? You know, you kind of go, hmm, might be weird. Okay. Now, here's what he says. Nicodemus, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, you've got to have this dual birth thing going on. Now, some people will try to say that Jesus is talking about baptism and the Spirit here. It just doesn't fit. Their argument sometimes is, well, Nicodemus wouldn't have known about about, uh, the sack of water that a a person's born in in the womb, you know, enclosed in. So that, therefore, it doesn't fit. I don't buy that. The context screams you are born physically and you must be born spiritually. Every person here has experienced a physical birth. But not everyone here, not everyone watching on Facebook, not everyone listening on the radio has experienced that second birth, that spiritual birth. And Jesus says, you've got to have two births. See, if you're born twice, you die once. If you're born once, you die twice. You die physically and you die spiritually. But if you're born again, if you're born twice, you die once. And that's physically and then even this body is resurrected. So Jesus says, you've got to be born physically, and you've got to be born spiritually. When well, Whoever, whatever, is born of the flesh is flesh, and what's born of the spirit is spirit. They're not the same. Flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. You must be born again. Well, the story continues on down, but we're going to jump down because of time's sake, all the way down to verse number 14 and 15. Now, this is something... That, again, we should remember, but it's really something that Nicodemus needed to remember. And, and probably, again, he understood the story, but I wonder if he did, understood the significance. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him can have eternal life. Now, again, I'm not sure. He knew, he knew the story, you know, when the children of Israel sinned and God sent serpents and, and they were all crying and whining about it. You know, it was their sin. And God said, okay, make a bronze serpent, lift it up. Whoever will believe and look at the serpent, the bronze serpent will be healed. Look, believe, heal. It's the same thing in the New Testament, isn't it? Look at Jesus, believe, and your sins will be forgiven. Amen? Is that what the book says? Okay, so so that he says that, and then he goes on these wonderful verses we all know. You know, it's kind of interesting. 
I always have a tendency to break into King James when I do this. Uh, but I'm going to try to read this so I won't break into King James. Because, because CSB does a good job with it. For God loved the world in this way. God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world in this way. He gave His Son, His only Son, His only begotten Son, again, King James, and anyone who believes... Now, now, come on, come on. Isn't it true? Don't we in our soul go like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, didn't you mean behave? Did, didn't you mean that whoever believes... I mean, who not believes, but whoever behaves gets to go to heaven. Yeah, then when you think, if I behave good enough, I get to go to heaven. And Jesus says, no, no. And God says, no, no. It's not based on behaving. It's based on believing. I don't ever lose, don't ever lose that. I, I can, you know, through the word of God, we can be set free today if we understand it's not about our stinking performance. It's about our faith in Jesus. It's believing what Jesus Christ did on this cross. That he shed his precious blood. That we could have forgiveness of our sins. That's what it's all about. It's not about behaving. And you ought to be glad. Because I'm going to tell you what. They, any of us can behave that good. I don't care how much you rate yourself on the behavior scale. You ain't that good. I'm glad God said. I'm glad Jesus said. Whoever Believes in him will not perish. And I love this. Look at verse 17. Because you know, 17 doesn't get credit. He lives in the shadow of 16. Look what it says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come as judge, he came as savior. He didn't come as judge, he came as redeemer. He didn't come as judge, he came as rescuer. His whole deal was redemption and rescue and salvation. And then I love, I love 18. Anyone, can somebody say anyone? Yeah, yeah, anyone, black, white, green, yellow, rich or poor, no matter your labels or your cars, okay? Anyone, whether you live in America, live in Africa or China, wherever. Anyone, anyone who believes, again, <laughs> not behaves, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. So, so no matter how bad you think you are, if you believe, you're not condemned. You've got to like that. You've got to like that. No, no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how bad you stumbled, no matter if you're sitting there today going, yeah, Dwayne, but you don't know. You know what? God says he knows. If you're willing to believe, you won't be condemned. Oh, how about that? So no matter how bad... You're not condemned. And why are you not condemned? Because God, when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, when you put your faith and trust in Him, He declares you righteous. He declares you right. He declares you right. Okay? So anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is condemned already. So, so no matter how good you think you are, now you say, well, you know, I, I don't want to brag, but I think I hung the moon. You know, you know everywhere I go, people tell me what a good person I am. You're not good enough to go to heaven. Anyone, anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Why? Because he does not believe in the name of the one and only Son of God. So that's the prayer. You know, that's the prayer. One of the people that we're going to talk about today, his name is Nicodemus. And again, God puts him in position, gives him the opportunity, and he chooses to act. 
Okay? So time passes. Weeks, months, passes. And when the time is right, they put Jesus on trial. They rough him up some. They put him on trial. And then they drag him before Pilate. Pilate doesn't have the courage that he needs to have. And so he gives in. And he's thinking, well, let me help Jesus out here. Maybe if I beat him to within an inch of his life, they'll think that's enough. So they scourge him and beat him to within an inch of his life. And uh, that didn't please them. Crucify him! Crucify him! They're all hollering. And Pilate comes out and washes his hands. Say, okay, I'm done with it. Okay, all right. Let his blood be on your hands. Take him and crucify him. So they drag him. He drags the cross up the hill. They put nails through his, through his hands and feet. And uh, he had hands and his feet. And they hoist him up on a cross. Much bigger than this. Now, now let me pause and tell you this. Remember the, the scripture I said Nicodemus need to remember this? If the Son of Man be lifted up as Moses is up the serpent. There's a, every possible... No, no. There's every reason to believe that Nicodemus and the guy we're going to talk about in a minute was there. And maybe, just maybe, when, when they saw that cross go up and Jesus nailed to it, they thought, said, I remember what he said. That the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent was lifted up. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and maybe they had a... I love... Where's Blair at? Where, Blair, where are you at? There, where, where, yeah. there you are. Yeah, I love the wild word. I love... I mean, I'm, I mean it all my heart. When she said, wow. So we all wow more. We all wow more. And maybe Nicodemus that day said, wow. This is what he was talking about. So he hangs on the cross... You know, he's crucified about noon and hangs there at about 3 o'clock. Remember? About 3 o'clock, the sky is darkened, the thunder comes. You know, Jesus cries out, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay? As, as he becomes sin and as the wrath of God is poured out, God the Father turns his back on his son. Okay? And then just a few minutes later, he cries out and says what? It is finished. It's done. It's done. The salvation is paid And then, the Bible says, he yielded his spirit. He willfully died. The nails didn't kill him. The scourging didn't kill him. He willfully died. He yielded. He gave up his spirit. And the clock starts The Jewish Sabbath starts at 6 o'clock in the evening. All the, the thunder, the lightning, God, why have you forsaken me, all happens around 3 o'clock. Do the math. From 3 to 6 is 3 hours. So whatever is going to have to happen after his death, the clock is ticking. They've got 3 hours. They have to be done because of the Sabbath. Keep that in your mind. It's very significant. So now we go to Act 1, Scene 1. We're in Mark chapter 15, verse 42. When it was already evening. Now this is interesting too. Write this down if you're taking notes. You remember in the movie, the Hobbit movies? Okay? They had first breakfast and second breakfast. What? I like that. I think we should adopt that. And I think both of them will be donuts. 
I think donuts are the way to go. First breakfast, donuts. Second breakfast, donuts. Okay? Well, the Jews had early evening and late evening. Write this down. Early evening and late evening. Early evening lasted from 3 to 6. Late evening started at 6 and went forward. So when it says, when it was already evening, it's the early evening. It's that period from 3 until 6. And by the way, mark this down because it's important. That the Jews counted any portion of a day as a whole day. Okay? So when the Bible says that he was in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, he was on in the grave a short time on Friday, all day Saturday, and a short time on Sunday. But he kept the word by saying, I'll be in the grave three days. The Jews counted time that way. So when it was already early evening from 3 to 6, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Okay, these are all important, just, just little tidbits that he gives us. Because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, our second hero. We had Nicodemus, and now we got Joseph of Arimathea. Okay? Now let's see what the Bible says about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the, San, of the Sanhedrin. Okay? A prominent member. So, so he has power. I'll tell you right now, he has wealth. I'll tell you right now, he's at, he has influence. But John chapter 19, verse 38, gives us a little snippet of information that's so clear and so important. I'm going to start back again with verse number 42. When it was early evening, because it was the day of preparation, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, and here's that John snippet, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly because of this fear of the Jews. Here's that small group. We know only two members by name, Nicodemus and Joseph. But they were men who came to the conclusion that Jesus was Messiah. But because of the price that that might entail, they kept it a secret. Until now. He himself, Mark says was looking toward the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. Act 1, scene 2. Verse 15, 43. He came. Remember now, the clock's ticking. He has, whatever's going to be done has to be done by 6. 3 to 6. Jesus dies at 3. Sabbath starts at 6. He came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now this is so big. This is huge. Joseph is showing that he had the right stuff. But now he's showing he can do the right thing. It's huge. It's important. It's, it's, it's more than important. Now, what you've got to understand, there's several things here. Um, first off, um, mark it down. Put your, Dwayne said, when this is all done... He will not be a member of the country club anymore. When this is all done, he's going to be kicked out of his neighborhood. When this is all done, he's going to have a new phone book in his cell phone. Because he is taking a stand with Christ. And it's going to cost him all his power. 
and popular. And I'm going to tell you right now, students, whether it's you, um, men and women, whether it's you, if you truly take a stand for Christ, you may have to clean up your phone book. You may not be welcome at the country club anymore. The neighbors that were your buds may not be your buds anymore. But he counted it worth the cost. He boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus. This is tricky in several ways. Do you know what the charge against Jesus was, the official charge? Treason. When you start befriending a traitor, there's a good chance you're going to jail too. Why do you think the boys ran? They ran because they didn't want to be associated with that traitor on the cross. They were afraid. So the official charge was treason, and yet he was willing to go to Pilate and beg the body of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? This is where Andy comes in, Andy Stanley. He did such a good job of painting the picture of what happened when you were crucified. He said, when the Romans crucified an individual, the body, actually the family was not, they were forbidden from claiming the body. They could not give a decent burial to their family member. So they were forbidden from claiming the body And then the Romans would take the body and leave it there, sometimes days, and it would rot. Right there on the cross, it would rot. And the message is this, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. After a few days, one day, three days, it varied. They would take and pry the body off, because they needed to pry it by then. They would pry the body off the cross. They would throw it in a wagon and take it to the valley of Gehenna. If you know anything about the Bible, the word Gehenna is the word used for the abode of the dead. It's a valley outside of Jerusalem. And they would take that body and throw it into this mass grave. It's as if the person never existed. The family had no closure. The family had no, and believe me, burial was so important to the Jews. No closure. No honor. It's as if he never, never existed. And that was to be the fate of Jesus. But Joseph did the right thing. It cost him his friends, it cost him his prestige cost him his power, but he did the right thing. Now, Britain, you know what makes this incredibly interesting? He didn't have a clue about the resurrection. Not a clue. Have you figured it out yet? We're going to show it today very clearly. But do you understand that no one expected Jesus to rise from the dead? It went right over their head. Every time he said, on the third day I'm going to rise again, woo! No one expected him to rise from the dead. So, 
It's not like he said, oh, I've got to do this so that, you know, I'll set up the resurrection for Jesus. He had no clue. You know why he did it? You don't miss this. It was just the right thing. And sometimes God calls us and we need to do the right thing just because it's the right thing. And I'm going to tell you what, what really just, wow, went in my head today. I know sometimes a topic like Sunday in the Park will pop up and they say, well, you know, we don't really see anybody saved, but are we impacting their lives? Are, are we loving on them? Are they saying, I love what somebody said on Facebook about the back school event. There was no holier-than-thou attitude. We showed them Jesus. And let me tell you, sometimes the church needs to do the right thing because it's the right thing. We need to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And that's what, Nick, that's what, that's what Joseph is doing. He doesn't know about the resurrection. He just knows this. Jesus deserves better than a mass grave. Jesus deserves better than a mass grave. So he throws it all in Gets kicked out of the country club. Loses all of his power, all of his prestige, all of his influence. Because Jesus deserves something better than a mass grave. Oh, Jesus could have resurrected from a mass grave. And would have. But it wouldn't have been all the power of the testimony. So God used Joseph to set that up. So he goes and asks for the body of Jesus. And and Pilate was amazed. He was surprised that he was already dead. And so he summons the centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion and said, Hey, is Jesus really dead? Yeah, he's dead. And oh, by the way, you need to know something. I really think he's the son of God too. Come on. You remember that? This must be the son of God. Yeah. Yeah, he's dead. I'm pretty sure he's the son of God. And so, and so then they, they, when he found out from the centurion that he was dead, he gave the course to Jesus. Unbelievable. Great. Maybe, I don't know if it was the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe Pilate was having guilt remorse. I don't know. All I know is he gave in and said, okay, you can take the body. And he does. And so, so he takes the body, okay, and then... And Act 1, Scene 3, this is Mark 15, 46. At, now, I like this, I like this, I like this. I love the Bible details. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in linen. Now, you're going to see in just a moment, there are two important aspects, okay, of the death preparation for the Jews. They didn't embalm, okay? The best thing they did was keep the body from stinking. Okay, so they wrapped the body in linen and they packed it with spices. Okay, so we see part one here. And I love this. You know, before, after Jesus, or after, after Joseph, okay, left Pilate, he went by Walmart and bought some linen. Isn't that a neat detail? He bought some linen. Okay, and so, so somebody's saying, what about the spices? Is he going to... You know, whenever a man's in charge, ladies, you know it, we do it halfway. Okay? Honey, would you clean the house? Oh, yeah, all right. Under the couch stuff, you know, all that, all that stuff going on. Okay? So where's the spices? Aha! Remember, there were two guys. So Joseph gets the... Joseph's job, and I think it was kind of pre-planned. When they saw things going south and knew Jesus was going to die, they got together and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'll get the body, okay? And I'll get the linen. You take care of the spices. Now, we see this in John 19, 39. I'll be on the screen here. Okay? 
Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 70 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, I'm going to tell you something. How do you spell sacrifice? Even if you're rich, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Amazing. So, Joseph gets the body and the linen. Nicodemus takes care of the spices. Isn't that cool? Somebody say amen. It's just a, it's one that, you know, it just adds to the, the authenticity of the Bible. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, oh, 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 I promise you something else, too. Let me give it to you. Remember I said no one expected Jesus to rise? When he's wrapped in linen, when 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes were used to pack around the body, he wasn't, he wasn't supposed to get up. He was dead and he was gone. He was dead and he was gone. They were simply doing the right thing, giving him a decent burial. The clock's ticking. They've got to get him in the grave by six. And they do. I don't know how much time there was to spare, but they made it because Friday's count is the first day. Act 1, scene 4. Mark 15, 46. So they laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock. It's really interesting. I think it's um, John that says the tomb was near. Another one says it was Joseph's tomb that was new. A tomb where no one had been laid before. All those details are just great. I love the fact that it says the tomb is near. And they needed one near because they had to hurry. The clock was ticking. They had till six. So they laid him out in a tomb, cut out a rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And the ladies are watching because the man can't do it right. Mary of Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hoseas, were watching where he was laid. So here are the two men and their servants taking Jesus and putting him in the tomb. And this Mary and Mary is watching. Now, real quick, I want to go to Act 2, Scene 1. I just want you to see this because it's good. So when the Sabbath was over, so we've got a little bit of time on Friday, maybe an hour. We've got all day Saturday. And by the time they get there at sunrise, Jesus is resurrected. So part of the day Friday, or part of the day Friday, all day Saturday, part of the day Sunday. Three days. Three days. When the Sabbath was over, Saturday was the Sabbath. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene. How many of y'all remember Mary Magdalene? Yeah. Remember what Jesus did for her? Seven demons. Seven demons. She was possessed by seven demons. And Jesus cast the demons out. Talking about love story. She couldn't do enough for him. So she goes to the grave that morning. Mary Magdalene. Um, Mary, the brother of James. Now this is, there's three James. You, you need to know these details. I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge. You need to know this. And in, in, the, in the Jesus story, okay, there's James and John. There's James the Lesser, called the Lesser because James and John were the bigger, okay, the two more important of the two, okay? And there was James the half-brother of Jesus, who was not even a believer at this time, okay? So this is, this is when he says, James the mother, um, Mary the mother of James, that's James the Lesser, okay? Now, by the way, if you want to study it, they think, okay, that this Mary was the sister of Mary the mother of Jesus, would make her 
Jesus' aunt, and James was then his cousin. You can check that out. So Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices. Okay? Salome is the mother of James and John, the apostles, the sons of thunder, Zebedee's boys. Okay? So they show up early in the morning, just after sunrise. Okay? They get there, and they brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Andy Stanley said, I do remember this part of his message. He said, you know why? Because they knew the men couldn't get it right. We got to take some more spices because I know they didn't do it right. Okay? Actually, it was an act of love and devotion. It was love and devotion. It was the right thing. They loved Jesus, and they wanted to show it. So it was just the right thing. And finally, in Mark 16, too, very early in the morning, I love the time, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, they went to the tomb at sunrise. You see those times? Make sure you understand, Sabbath is over, it's a new day. And boy, was it a new day. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the incident? How are we going to get into the tomb? And they get there, and you know the story. You know, They looked up and they saw the stone was rolled away. It was very large. It was rolled away. In verse 5, they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in white. Now, you need to get out of your brain this concept, cultural concept of angels. You know, the wings and the, oh, they were messengers of God. Oh, I don't think we have any scriptural reference that says they have wings and float around going, oh, okay. So this was a young man. He was a messenger, an angel, okay. And the Bible says they were alarmed. How many of y'all would have been alarmed? You walk into a tomb at sunrise, it is dark, and you're expecting to find a dead guy and you find an angel. You know, how you spell ouch, okay? This funny, this Greek word means afraid and astonished. Two emotions at one time. They were afraid, but they were astonished. And I would have been too, all right? And then he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He told them, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. In other words, you got the right place. Have you, ever, have you ever been looking for an address before? And you walk up and doorbell, it's, does Dwayne live here? Oh, yes, okay, you got the right place. So they're making sure that, you know, he's making sure they know you got the right tomb. You haven't, wa- in the dark, you haven't wandered into the wrong place, you got the right place. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He ain't here. He is risen. Now, you sin if you don't say amen. <laughs> he ain't here. He is risen. Literally in the Greek, he is raised. He is raised. And, and, and it goes on and says, now, now, come see the place where they put him. Come see the place where they put him. So there was an outer chamber. That's where they met the angel. And he said, come on in here. And they went in, and there were the cloth all folded up there. This is where they laid him. He's not here. He is raised. And then they said, now listen, you've got to go. This is Act, Act 2, Scene 4. You know, you've got to go. Tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. I love that. You know why I love it? Because I'm so much like Peter. Remember Peter denied Jesus? Don't know the man, don't know the man. And specifically, the angel says, go tell the 
this, go tell the boys, go tell the disciples. You be sure and find Peter too. Because he needs a special message. Not because he's important, but because he's wounded. Not because he's important, because he's broken. You tell him. And you know what's really interesting? Guess where Mark got all the information for his gospel? Peter. Why do you think Peter specifically made sure that Mark... Now, you write this down. The angel said... Now, the angel said, go tell his disciples. And then he said, go tell me, Peter. You know why? He wanted all of us to know that there was hope for him and there's hope for us. No matter how big our mistake, no matter how big our sin, no matter how big our failure, hey, I want you to know there's hope. There's forgiveness. You know, if God can forgive the man who said, don't know you, don't know you, don't know you, he can forgive you. <laughs> Ain't that good news? That's good news. You go tell the disciples and Peter, you know, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. And they went out and they ran from the tomb, trembling with fear and astonishment, overwhelmed. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. We're not sure if that means they didn't talk to anybody on the way or did they wait a little while? You know, fearing that people think they're crazy, which, by the way, they did. You know, people, boy, are you you sure this happened? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. And that would be the end of the play on this part. That's the end. It's not the end because we know Jesus appeared to thousands of people. He met with the guys. And 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. And guess what? He's coming back. He's coming back. Now, imagine how different that story would be if Joseph and Nicodemus hadn't done the right thing. Particularly Joseph. What if if Joseph had said, the cost is too great? I'll lose my job. See, pastors wrestle with this. Sometimes we know what's right, but we also know when you work with three or 400 people, doing the right thing can sometimes be dangerous. You can end up unemployed. He could, again, I am certain he was kicked out of the country club. He, he was kicked out of the neighborhood. People would walk by him and never speak to him again. Why? Because he did the right thing. Don't you think for a minute that doing the right thing is cheap? It'll probably cost you. But you know what? It also makes Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Unlikely heroes. Two guys, powerful, influential, wealth, riches, power. And they do the right thing. And it changes the whole Easter story. So my question is this. Each one of us are unlikely heroes. What opportunity are you going to... Maybe you know one. Kids, I, students, I, I think about the high school. You've got to see kids being bullied. You've got to see kids pushed around for one reason or another. You know, will you do the right thing? You've got to see you know, at work, racial comments, things like that. Guys, what are we going to do with that? Will we choose to do the right thing? So my challenge is... As we go through life, and particularly this coming week, will we see the opportunity that God gives us to do the right thing? And will we do it? And will we do it? Would you bow your heads right there, please?
Uh, thank you so much for listening today. I, I, I feel like this is one of those really practical messages. How many times? I, I bet, I bet if, if I asked you who in this room can think of a missed opportunity, you would know one. You saw someone hurting. You saw someone hungry. You saw someone weeping. And you didn't do the right thing. Someone in school standing by themselves. Sitting by themselves at lunch because no one will sit with that kid. Guess what? (laughs) We get the opportunity to do the right thing this week. Joseph did. Nicodemus did. It cost them a lot. But they did. Now, the ultimate right thing goes back to the very beginning. You must be born again. You may be one of those people who struggle through life and you are trying so hard to do the right thing and boy, you know there's something not there's something missing in your life. And the old way we say it is there's like a, a big hole in our heart. And it's a ho- I want you to know it's a hole that only God can fill. Jesus came and died for you that you could have forgiveness of sins. And there's no sin too big. There's no mess up too big. There's no failure too big. My friend Brent's going to be standing down front. We call this our decision time. And it gives you a chance to act on the truth that you heard. For some of you, it might be trusting Jesus Christ. You may not know all the answers, and by the way, who does? You may not know all the answers, but you know this. Something's urging you to come and say, Brent, I want to know this Jesus who died for me. Can you help me? And he can and we can. Maybe you're here today, and you know you've missed opportunities. And you're saying, God, starting today, I want to be an unlikely hero. I want to do the right thing when the opportunity presents itself. After all, after all, if we want a better future, then we've got to disturb the present. God, thank you for the privilege of sharing your word today. God, please speak to people on Facebook, on radio, or here in this room. Speak to our hearts, Father. Challenge us, motivate us, urge us, move us to be like these two guys we heard about, Nicodemus and Joseph, to do the right thing. I pray for my friend who might be here without Jesus. Oh, may they act on that. May they do the right thing and put their faith and trust in him. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name.